This is the Wonder Life Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Ritter. Each week, I interview game changers, thought leaders, and functional health and wellness experts to inspire us to light up our lives so we can go out and light up this world. You may follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wonder Health, and that is Wonder with a U. I would love to give a shout out to one of our Gut Check Summit and Wonder Life Wellness and Beauty Expo partners, Uninhibited Wellness. They inspire living through adventure. Their goal is to help career-minded women create exciting and healthy lifestyles through adventures, whether it's coaching programs or trips. They want women to live their most confident, powerful, and happy life. They are an amazing company. Check them out at the Gut Check Summit here in Fort Collins, Colorado, on April the 6th, 2019, at the Lincoln Center, where you will get the legit guide to your gut health and how it affects everything. This week on the Wonder Life Podcast, Bryn and I interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Ryan, a microbiome expert and researcher at Colorado State University. She has been diving deep for years to understand the gut microbiomes, how legumes and rice actually heal our gut, and she will share her brilliance with us in this podcast and at the Gut Check Summit on April 6th. So please enjoy the show. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. Awesome. I am. I'm really excited to talk to you because you are one of the leaders in the microbiome research on the planet. (laughs) That's what we're going to call you here. Um, And so what is going on with the microbiome and why do you think it's at the forefront of the conversation right now? Okay, no, that's a great question because microbiomes are represent an, a very exciting wealth of information on this planet. Um, whether or not you're trying to describe the microbial communities of the soil, of water, of your gut, of different parts of your skin, um, there's microbes living everywhere, and microbes. People like to think of just bacteria, but the reality is we're talking about viruses and fungus and other forms of microbes as well. And this has been a new frontier because we're now only getting to the point where we're describing what these communities look like that we coexist with and how they function and how instrumental they are to aspects of our lives. That is wild. Like it's like we've obviously always had a microbiome Mm -hmm. and we have many microbiomes. So just to clarify, like, so right now the gut microbiome is like the hot Mm -hmm. topic, but we have microbiomes where else? Yes. I think, um, what we're learning now is that you can find a community of microbes 
almost anywhere you look, there's people swabbing. I mean, if you want to look at even your tables and your all the environments, all the animals that you coexist with, right? Um, plants have their own microbiome. Soil systems do. So microbes live everywhere, I think. And they have a function and we coexist with them. They represent many forms of metabolism and they help us in so many ways. And so it's more than just thinking about those that reside in your mouth or your gut or on your skin, um, but that we're really sharing it with the environment that we live with. So with your work, with the research that you do, what are you focused on? So my particular interests are focused on um, how the diet influences the gut microbiome and specifically in a way that um, influences your immune response. And that could be your immunity to different pathogens. It could also influence your immune response to in various disease conditions, whether we're talking about an immunity that could be altered in an overweight or obese condition and all the way to the kind of spectrum of preventing or controlling cancer. Wow. Mm-hmm. So thank you. With the gut microbiome, if it is out of balance, does that mean that there's also some imbalances that can be found in other microbiomes throughout the body? Not, mm-hmm. you know, not even diving into the environmental microbiomes. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people use the term microbial dysbiosis to describe maybe an altered microbiome. Um, And it's hard to describe what a normal microbiome looks like because we all vary so much in our microbiomes what's normal, right? And so something that's described maybe in a disease condition, so in colorectal cancer patients is one area that my research focuses on. And we try to understand what are the microbiomes of people with colon cancer, right? And how does that compare to healthy individuals? And the reality is it's been a very challenging field. There are themes and there are trends with certain types of microbes that cause inflammation, for example. Um, However, because it's um, so variable across not just maybe this town or this country or this planet, um, it's been difficult to say, here's, a, here's one that's gone awry. Here's a dysbiotic one. Um, the microbiome is starting in your, you know, right at birth. In, in those early, really, years is where we're developing, and we're learning a lot more now about the development of the microbiome that you're going to have pretty much for life. But then there's an evolution of it because you are so much interacting with different aspects of your environment. So you may have heard when you think about rural places or people exposed to more animals might have different microbiomes than individuals who live maybe in very clean spaces. Oh, that's really interesting. And we share a microbiome with our dogs and cats. Is that right? <laughs> yes, there are. There is some literature to support um, the sharing between animals that live in your home as well. But so I think it's hard to say that this is, you know, and this is where the field is really challenged, but also excited about moving forward within an individual, but then within cohorts of individual, are there factors such as sleep, travel, diet, right? Acute illness, taking antibiotics for a couple of weeks. You know, we know that all these things can influence the microbiome. We also know that your microbiome can recover from a lot of these types of insults. And so that may vary with time, um, age, and ultimately as you're aging, right, you're also changing in your immune system. And so there's a lot of signaling that occurs between the microbiome and the immune system. And what's really exciting now is that there's also a lot of evidence to support um, a gut-brain access and that the microbiome is signaling to also influence cognitive development and brain development and functioning. 
So how long has this research been going on? I mean, I know I already asked, but it's just like fascinating to me that it's so like right now. And, mm-hmm. and it seems like it's just exploding. Yeah. Exploding is, a, is an accurate term because it is. And the applications and the utility of the information that's being gathered is really still being you know, discovered and still being realized. Do you think it's because our technology, like we're just making so many advances with our technology that it's like, Oh, we can look at it like on that level. Cause the microbiota, is that what they're called? Yeah. The microbiomes low- and microbiota are used, um, not interchangeably in the hard sciences and the literature, but I find that the terminology is being in, in terms of the lay public, um, you know, if you're talking about a community of microbes or if you're talking about a few single microbes, you know, we try to be as descriptive about what we're referring to as possible. Okay. Or bacteria. If I'm just referring to bacterial communities, now with the microbiome field, it's very, very important to, you know, clarify that I'm not talking about viruses or funguses or, you know. I think it's so powerful what you said, like, that that your micro biota biota <laughs> microbiota the, that that it can heal like that it can get better because i think a lot of times like we think like oh my god like and that i think it's a big question can you know can we or is is my microbiome or my gut is it ever healed fully um do we ever fully come into balance or is it like any relationship where it's like you're constantly at work with it to make sure you're keeping it in balance. Like it'd be nice if you could just like go, okay, it's done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're good. And then you move on about your business, but I'm having a feeling that's not how it works. Right. I mean, I think that's where maybe there's going to be less about the composition. So for example, as you can notice from fermented foods or probiotics, right, there's lots of opportunity to influence the composition and your exposures and your environments all influence your composition and your microbiome. But there's that core that we talk about that's quite stable, even though in their composition, but maybe by different foods we eat, there is room. And what we've shown in our research is that you can change the metabolism of the microbiome. Wow. So you're actually, so it is helping. So by feeding it or thinking about um, prebiotics are being termed now, right? Or a lot of fiber sources, these are food for your microbiome. And so is that where a lot of your research around... Um, specific foods is coming in? Absolutely. So I think that the piece here is we have a pretty diverse diet. (laughs) You know, many people do some, some more than others. Um, The number of food components and which food components and how your microbiome will metabolize those foods varies based on what your composition is, right? I mean, that's where it gets very challenging. So in the research that we're doing right now, it's a lot of it is based on work that's been done in animal models. So for example, I study foods like whole grain brown rice and legumes and specifically things like beans, navy beans, black beans, um, that have been shown in animal studies to protect against colorectal cancer. And the fibers from these whole grains and legumes have been shown specifically to um, be important and different from fruits and vegetables fibers. So when right now, a major recommendation is to increase your fiber intake. Mm-hmm. Americans are definitely not meeting 30 grams a day, which is the daily recommended fiber recommendation. Why is that? Because all these interesting diets that we're putting ourselves on. Yeah, I mean, I, 
it's, it's not easy to do. And it's also not easy to do if it's not coming from staple foods. Mm. So that volume and percentage of fiber. Um, so even if, and there are some studies that have compared people getting enough fiber per day, those more from fruits and vegetables and others from whole grains and legumes and the fiber sources are quite different. So those, and how they're feeding the microbiome is really what we're focused on in my laboratory mm. and understanding when you feed different individuals at risk for colon cancer. So right now, if you're overweight or obese, you are at risk for developing colon cancer. And it is something that's coming increasingly prevalent in younger populations. So mm. under the age of 50, colon cancer is on the rise. So then you go back and think, okay, well, is it fiber intake starting at birth? Mm. You know, you're starting to get these prebiotics and these um, are starting literally through breast milk and your early stages of your microbiome development. So my lab's very interested in these foods at these very early stages of life, as well as kind of these later as, as when it becomes dysbiotic or um, at risk for more chronic diseases. That's so interesting. I've been very attracted to rice these last couple of years. I was okay. grain free mm-hmm. and I got shingles and I keep talking about it, but I'm not trying to bring it back up in my life. So I'm knocking <laughs> on wood. Um, but I like started eating rice and it was like making me feel so much better. And I was like, well, shoot, you know, like, and listening to like how that works. So it's interesting that you say it yeah. plays a role. And I think with rice and I love to talk about rice because I study rice from all over the world. And and it's one of those, it's the staple food. It's one, it's amazing that we have this one agricultural crop that feeds half of humanity. Mm. Okay. So it's being grown in places where people are suffering from malnutrition and diarrheal disease and not making it past the age of five, all the way to kind of at risk for obesity and some more of these um, issues where we have longer lives. But the brown rice is what I definitely recommend to people to keep the brand on. Traditionally, the brand's always been polished off, which is why we know more about white rice than we do brown. Um, But even more so, our research studies the brand on its own. So millions and millions of metric tons of rice bran that's polished from white rice is produced every year. And it's largely fed to animals, though now it is coming back into the human food supply here. There are places that are heat. But the key piece and the reason that it was always polished off is because... um, there's a lot of fats in that. So it's not just fiber in the brand. There are also a lot of phytochemicals and lipids. And now, they, what do those do? And so those will become oxidized and go rancid. Okay. And so the reason that we started publishing rice was so that it could sit for years on end and mm. ship all around the world, right? Maybe a place only could produce it one time a year, and so you want it to last. So that's when they stopped utilizing the bran. And the bran is where we find all these extremely healthy anti-inflammatory compounds, a lot of phytochemicals, these prebiotics that are seeding healthy gut microbes. So some of the findings we have is that feeding animals rice bran, and then we've now shown this in people too, actually supports the growth of native gut beneficial microbes like probiotics that you already have, not necessarily that you need to consume them. Okay, so with brown wow. rice, um, mm-hmm. is there a specific kind that we need to be looking for if we want to go and get all of these good nutrients? Yeah. So right now, it's very hard to be saying there's, I mean, there's 
hundred thousand varieties of rice, you know, that is insane. And and the reason we have this is because it's been one of these crops that, um, in different regions may grow great. Different varieties are adapted to certain regions and there's cultural preferences. And so they have their origins. So it's hard to say you should buy this one Indian rice variety or something like that. I mean, if you look at rice consumers, they actually do eat different varieties of rice. So I'm cautious to say that there's one, but our lab does compare the chemical profile of the brand from different varieties. So maybe some might have properties that can suppress the growth of pathogens better than another. And we've actually shown that. So we've tested salmonella in our models, and we've seen that some rice varieties and some different probiotics, the same way where, you know, how there's so many different probiotics Mm -hmm. out there, the different combinations that can suppress the growth of pathogens. And that could be important um, as a non-antibiotic alternative. It yeah. could be important as maybe a topical spray on foods that might con- be considered um, culprits for getting contaminated, right? There's a, so this is where I get to is our knowledge about the microbiome and then our applications are still, mm-hmm. like we're still discovering where these where there's some opportunities, there are things on the market like microbial concoctions that might help plants grow better or, um, you know, so that's what I'm saying. But that same one may not have been tested to see if it resolves an infection in an animal or in a person or maybe topically we should we could be starting to treat. So I think that's where the applications of this research um, is, is really just starting to unfold. <laughs> That is fascinating. So what are your, what's your vision for the work you're doing and um, any impact that you're hoping, I'm sure you've already made a huge impact, but just like where you see this going. So I think right now, I mean, when we want to, and again, I'll kind of cover both extremes of, there's a lot of room to improve gut health across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. And whether that starts and if you want to take, you know, even mothers well, um, Getting, when, during pregnancy, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about a prenatal vitamin, right? That's definitely made it. Everybody gets it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk a lot about making sure they get their fiber needs. Mm. And their fiber needs are actually equally important, and they're part of dietary guidelines. So that's something we're currently working on and trying to say. Because all this microbiome research has now told us how important some of these saccharides and sugars and prebiotics are in the breast milk. Mm. And so if their fibers maybe intake low, maybe they're not going to be producing enough of these things. And this is how that research is informing that early stage of life. I'm interested in those early years also because um, growth is a problem in many developing countries. So our work has taken us into parts of Latin America and Africa and Asia where stunting is still a problem. Diarrheal diseases are still high. Are there food solutions that could be taken to help protect the gut? and let these kids grow, you know, even though they have pathogens. So Rice Brand, we've finished some clinical trials now in infants um, in West Africa and in, in Nicaragua to see if they could just use this as a weaning food and see if there's more protection against some of the pathogens because their water might have more of it in it. Another place we've been able to actually have some impact is to translate what we've known from animals where rice bran's been shown to protect against colon rectal cancer in animals and start feeding people at risk for colon cancer and that have had colon cancer and want to reduce their risk for it coming back. Um, That's been a really exciting area for rice bran. What I haven't talked about as much is also beans. A complementary food is what I say from an amino acid profile and with also fiber and also having a lot of phytochemicals that have been shown to protect against cancer too. 
you know, this combination of foods is not something new, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> rice and beans. <laughs> exactly. And, um, so it's just a matter of our society now. What is the, what is the barrier? Well, is it a behavioral barrier? Well, what do you say? Everyone's going to say, I'm not going to increase half a cup of beans per day because of the gas and the flatulence and it doesn't work with my stomach. What we've been able to do is start with people to work slowly and it does get better. And the way we've done our studies is sneaking it into foods and meals and snacks that we provide people and they don't even realize they're eating a half a cup of beans per day. But then we can measure things in their blood and their urine and their stool and even in their colon tissue um, with measurable changes in some of these metabolites. Reducing inflammation is something, for example, we're very interested in and improving a person's metabolism. Why does Why do beans cause gas? So there are components in the beans, and these are going to be interacting with your microbes, right? And then you'll have gas-forming compounds there. The key piece here is adjusting the metabolism and, you know, and getting your system used to it. So maybe a person doesn't ever eat beans, and they're just eating a big bowl of chili, (laughs) and then they have their full dose. What we're talking about is a little bit a lot all the time, not just one massive dose of it. So, you know, um, a lot of people talk about food as medicine. And so this idea that you're not just going to take one pill one time and expect it to work, right? Yeah. And this idea, but I don't like people thinking about it being medicine because food is something that should be, you know, satiating and energy driving yes. and right. So that's, so it, it's a complicated area of using that terminology. Um, but it's a much more practical solution for sure than needing to take an aspirin a day. <laughs> so I think a lot of diets and a lot of people that have dealt with various gut issues, especially the last 10 years, mm-hmm. we've been told, get rid of gluten, which is certainly true for some people. And then um, I think, I mean, for me in particular, I was told like, oh yeah, just cut out all the grains. And then Mm -hmm. as things have progressed, I'm like, well, it's okay if I have some rice sometimes. It feels all right. Like eating black beans, that doesn't bother me. So why why are we told so often um, to remove these from our diet? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we're a society that likes to go to extremes and forgets that you know, moderation and a little bit of everything (laughs) is, is probably the best strategy. So... It's really hard. It was very hard, and it was extremely disturbing to me when everything started growing grain-free, actually, because then I was like, where are people getting their fibers, you know? And I started seeing, even for if you want to look at pet food, for example, is another area that I've been doing work in. And there is now evidence to finally show, after all those years, that those grain-free diets did not, in fact, actually improve the health of any of those animals. Um, I think people have also had to experience it, to realize that that may not be the solution. Um, Grains have been a staple part of people's diets for a long time. And we took it a little far when it got to processed foods. So I think um, we need to think about that, that these are still whole foods. Um, And then if you think about grain consumption as a percentage of your processed food intake, that might be a better way for people to evaluate how, you know, when I look at my bean consumption, it's not based on how much beans are in chips. Right. <laughs> right? Um, it's just eating my Darn it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying these aren't – and there's a lot of really cool food solutions out there of ways to get yeah. healthier 
whole food ingredients into your body, but we've also done a lot to process food. The processing. Us of exactly the a lot of the nutrients that could be available. So um, I've heard that like soaking beans or mm-hmm. sprouting beans and then cooking them helps to digest more. Is that yes. true? Well, I think it's important to note that soaking, I mean, if you're going to be cooking beans from their dry form, right, that soaking is a great idea prior to cooking. It's hard because, again, everybody's a little bit different. So it's hard to know if those are, I think, cooking staples in a variety of ways, whether they be sprouting and so, I mean, is, is probably the best. Um, but when people say, well, I don't have time to cook beans, I, I say, that's, you know, cans is okay. It's kind a of a beautiful. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to rinse them, and but you can still get them into your diet quite simply and low cost. Yeah. So this idea of it being a low cost solution, increasing your fiber intake to get your gut back on track, and trying things like the rice bread and the beans that we're doing. Um, it, and it's not necessarily that people have to cook with all this stuff themselves, right? It's just a matter of how do we start making the foods that are available to include these types of things. So that's another area that we're moving into is, wow, we've seen these effects. The biggest question I get is, now where do I find these rice bread foods? Where do I find? And that's where working with industry has been a, another partnership that's important to the success of the research. So you can buy rice bran at this time mm-hmm. and cook with it because you it, could. It's, it's not different than like a, available like wheat okay. bran is or uh, maybe oat bran, but it's starting to make it out. Mm-hmm. And there's been concerns, you know, with um, different chemicals and you know adverse components considered there. I mean, it's just a matter now of us developing food safety standards and making sure, for example, things like arsenic are low. Um, and rice bran oil is being widely used now, Interesting. too. And that, because I said it was rich in fat, so the lipids have now been extracted. So that's kind of a new product that you'll see that's, um, I know, being more incorporated. However, it's not have, it doesn't have the fiber in it. So I say it's not enough to do the rice bran oil. We really do need the, the fiber fraction included. So Whenever I would ask before, which, are, which is it? I say, well, you kind of want the whole thing because sometimes yeah. it's those fibers that help bring those fats in the rice mm-hmm. to the gut and helps release some of them there. So that's really at a mechanistic level what my lab does is understand the components that are in the rice bran after you eat them, how microbes change them and deliver them to immune cells to be active or to the gut. This might be too much information and technical, but I'm yeah. so curious. How do you do the work? Do you study the yeah. fecal matter? Yeah. So, i.e., poop. Yes, absolutely. So, um, our lab does collect lots of poop and lots of stool. So, I use when I talk about humans, I use the word stool, and when I talk about animals, I try to say feces, just so that people know which one I'm talking about. Um, but whether they're dogs or they're people, we we feed. But we usually collect a stool sample, urine sample, blood samples before we do our interventions and maybe even for weeks before just to get an idea because your baseline is changing. Um, some of our interventions have been as small as two weeks. Some of them have gone as long as three months. Mm. Um, it is costly and time consuming to keep people on anything up to six months and beyond. You can follow and monitor Right now, we've been working with uh, local gastroenterologists and collecting colon tissue itself from routine colonoscopies. 
because we're finding that the microbiomes of the stool are actually quite different than the microbiomes of the colon tissue itself. Wow. So if, as you think about it, right, it's excrement and everything that should be excreted. There's plenty of things that are in molecules that are being absorbed. Mm-hmm. And so that's the... Um, metabolism that we're really interested in is what's happening at the site of the colon. And even along the GI tract, there's differences in the microbial communities that are present. So we think about stool and poop as representative of maybe the distal colon and rectum, but really in the upper GI tract, it's not, it is quite different. How would you possibly even test in the upper? Yeah. So, I mean, this is where the field is right now for people undergoing some of these routine procedures. I think that's an opportunity for us to collect samples and understand what's going on. And there's usually something wrong, right? It's not something we're sampling on healthy individuals, but um, that's where we go to animal models. So, for example, before I was able to start feeding rice bran to six-month-old infants, I did do a number of studies with neonatal pigs because their intestinal tract resembles and is very similar to oh, wow. infants. And that, so what we call these is these are preclinical testing. And then you can sample along the small intestine and the large intestine, and I can take all of you. Like in a mouse study we're doing right now with colon cancer and rice bran, I can tell you what's happening at the level of the cecum. Um, and so I think it's important that we take what we can get. Um, yeah. There's, but routine colonoscopies... There's no reason why when people are going in anyway that we can learn from uh, differences right now we're looking at in between just the right and the left colon, the ascending and the descending colon. This is so fascinating. Do you have any other questions for Elizabeth? I do. Um, So with the way that everything is changing so rapidly, what is exciting for you about the future of this and and particularly for your research? Okay. Yes, keeping up with... um, the vast amount of information is tough, and that's where getting students and postdocs involved, and you know, there, there's a it's definitely a large collaborative team effort to keep up with the field. Um, no one person, and so, you know, we've been. Uh, I would say sometimes it's easy to get stretched a little too thin to be drawn into all these different dimensions of microbiome research, or maybe across all the species. But I've found that engaging in people looking at soil systems has helped me a lot to better understand um, something. For example, antimicrobial resistance is another topic that um, comes out, right? We don't want, um, right now we're finding that increased antibiotic use and is starting to increase infections that are no longer able to be treated with antibiotics. Mm. So um, this is a topic that it doesn't, it's an emerging frontier of issues. It's rampant in the hospital settings, where if you come in with an infection that there's currently no antibiotics to treat, um, we want to start understanding what that looks like before that occurs, if that makes sense. So this this is one topic that I'm starting to get very interested in, and I'm not sure if I hadn't been involved in microbiomes that I would have probably started to get involved there. So I think it leads you to, to one thing to the next. For example, and yes, I do a lot of work with rice bran and beans, and I think there's still to be more to be done for people to start adopting some of the findings that we're having and benefiting from some of the findings. Um, But I'm starting to delve into a lot of other foods now too. Uh, It's definitely led us to think about fermented foods more. So we've started in my lab fermenting with various native gut microbes so that individuals maybe who don't have some of these, uh, maybe we can ferment the rice bran for them before they consume it and Mm. improve that as opposed to just needing to take probiotics. 
So I would say, um, you know, food fermentation has been an exciting area. I know the beverage fermentation area has plenty of people working in that space. Um, But a third of the diet used to be fermented food. So another question my lab's having is, does increasing, does fermented food itself change, you know, influence the composition and function of the microbiome Mm. when you compare it to its non-fermented form? That's fascinating. Um, yeah, so those there's a lot of new directions. Um, another thing, I think being at Colorado State University is exciting because we do have such an environmental focus too. So just today I was in discussions talking about the air microbiome and infectious diseases among wildlife and, you know, that might spread. And so, you know, thinking about how the microbiome of all these systems yes. allows the spread or sharing or control or, mm. you know, protection um, maybe all of us in this room could have the similar exposure to salmonella from something, right? A food safety concern. But maybe only one of us gets sick. Typically, we always are worried about the individual that gets sick. But I'm just as interested to study the microbiome of the people that were protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sometimes another area that I think we're realizing now is we need to understand everywhere that the microbiome is being protective. Yeah. Not just where it's going awry and causing disease. I love that. I love that. And that goes to, you know, the fact that we are resilient and that we are designed to heal and our focus. Yes. I love that. We're trying to fix what is, is wrong, Mm -hmm. but focusing on what is right and why it's right is so powerful. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Studying health. Sounds yes. like a, a nice thing that mm-hmm. somebody should be doing. Well, and defining health. Is it the absence of disease? You know, and, and that's where I think that's another whole area that is, um, and that's currently how it's been defined, but I think many of us feel that it's not just. That is so awesome. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. You're very, very we are welcome. thrilled to know you and to have you at the Gut Check Summit. Yes, I'm looking forward to participating. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. You're welcome.